head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, he has yet to hold a press conference this year. It's Andy Greenwald! I love that you mentioned that. You know, I got, I got Biden mania over here. I can't wait to talk about the White House press corps. It's green screen Andy. What's up, buddy? How are you? I love these flying by the seat of our pants Thursdays. I think this is pretty exciting. Speak for yourself. I have a a robust agenda that I have to get through with you. I just Just got done doing President uh, Joe Biden. I love it. (laughs) I just got done doing the real ones with Logan Murdoch. We talked about the NBA trade deadline, so I'm I'm feeling good. I feel like this is actually maybe what I should start doing is do a podcast before the watch all the time, so that I'm just like completely like loose and like I've been I'm like all warmed up. A million percent. Maybe people. I'd like to think some people might be interested in this, but podcasting is a sport like any other, or maybe like no other, but you are a thousand percent right where every so often we'll have an opportunity to hypothetically, actually, this actually happened this week, talk to someone. And the person is so good as a guest for our podcast. I'm not spoiling it because we have something coming up next month that we're thrilled to share with you guys. But the opportunity is so good that we will wildly origami bend our schedules to accommodate it. And maybe that means, you know, being at our desks at nine in the morning, uh, which is fine. I mean, many people are at their desk at nine in the morning, but like <laughs> popping off questions. You know what I mean? Sure. At nine in the morning. At work, hard work at nine in the morning. And and I, every time that happens, I'm like, good oh boy. But the combination of coffee gets me there. And then I am, shouts to Steve Soderbergh, high flying bird the rest of the day. Right. You're ready to just be like, give me another pod. Let's go. I feel amazing. Um, actually, Andy, so today what I wanted to talk about was a couple of things. We got some listener mail or some listener questions over a Facebook group. So I wanted to hit some of those. I wanted to talk to you a little bit. Chris, I'm sorry. Kaya, Chris, do we have a snail mail account or has Big Lou DeJoy scuttled that too? (laughs) 
do we have an email account? I, well, you like listener email. mail. Like, I mean, oh, literally, like, like you want, mail. Do you want like a P.O. box? Because I'm currently using the P.O. box that we do have. <laughs> it's kind of tied up in some shell corporation stuff. So like, oh. it's in Delaware, but then that yeah. mail itself forwards to a place I have in the Caymans. Oh, well, I'm glad we blew the lid off this. We'll have to circle back at the end. Okay, I'm interrupting you because I'm trying to match your energy. Talk to me about your plan. For so today. we got a little bit of Ploos news. I want to talk to you a little mm-hmm. bit about Black Widow coming coming to the Ploos. Mm-hmm. I want to talk mm-hmm. to you a little bit about Superstore ending. And mm-hmm. then uh, we got some listener emails, some listener questions. And then I thought we could talk about our new viewing project. We've done reading projects in the past where Andy and I have kind of broken down a book over the course of a couple of episodes. But we're really excited because he and I, he, Andy, had, mm. and I have fallen in love with a TV show. And we love it so much that we want to uh, like make it a little bit more of a like a longer term project over the next couple of weeks or months. And that show is The Bureau, which is uh, on Sundance now. It's available on AMC Plus. It's available through you know various ways of, of watching it. People have just I've sort of noticed have started to bump up against the realities of this ask. You know, generally we talk freely about shows that are on like the big seven, I guess, networks sure. and sure. streaming services. And, you know, people seem to find the stuff okay. I think people generally in their monthly plans are including the the services that we tend to to pick from. This is a little bit extra. And, you know, it is on Prime Video, but you have to pay the additional subscription fee. You can also get it through like AMC Plus, I believe, through your Apple TV. Mm -hmm. Look, what can I say? We all agree that... We wouldn't send you there unless we thought it was worth it. You know, I think we all agree the post-Brexit Eurozone is a mess. Like, you know, like just the, the commerce demands on us and, and on the what you're paying here versus what they paid originally in Luxembourg to watch the show in Canal Plus. I don't I don't want to get into it, but it's really worth it. We adore the show and we will explain why later. Yeah, we'll talk about episode. it a little bit towards the end of the episode. So uh, unless you had any other stuff you wanted to hit. Oh, oh yeah, I do. It is related. I was joking about about our, our president and his press conference, which I did watch, but um there was so one that, thing about is, is it specifically. Is that a routine thing for you? Did you make sure you watch all the press conferences of our presidents? Well, Chris, as I believe you know from our friends in the press corps, this was his first. So <laughs> what was he hiding? I had to find out. Um, the thing that I wanted to talk about that I thought was amazing, and I think a lot of people may have may want to add on to what I'm saying because they saw that Dana Carvey went semi-viral for doing a Biden impression on Colbert this week that was very accurate because it, chose a different tack. It wasn't doing the kind of like, you know, uh, manic 1960s uh, Jiminy Cricket impression that Jim Hold Carrey did. Hold my juicy it was, fruit, Jack. Yeah. yeah, it was much more like the sort of <laughs> slightly extraterrestrial empath bot that he sure. has become, you know, which was fantastic. But uh, Dana Carvey did this and the president did this many, many times in this hour plus freewheeling press conference that I watched today. And what it is, I wanted to say to you, Chris, made me, it put me on the edge of my seat in a way that I don't know if it would have for non-podcasters because Biden does something that is the sweetest and most dangerous high for anyone who talks to a microphone for a living. Is that and, um, doing a, a MeUndies ad or? <laughs> no, that's just bread and butter. <laughs> that's, just what, that's just what gets you through. Chris, it is preparing an answer and then announcing that you will be providing the answer in multiple parts. Yeah, yeah. Guys, there is no high wire act more alluring and treacherous than saying, 
okay, so three things here. And a couple times in the last few months, I've caught myself doing it. And I'm like, you rascal. You reckless bastard. So what's your because, major concern that you're going to forget that you have three points to make and get lost in the first one and then be like, a, I don't remember what two and three were? A billion percent, yes. And are I you mean, worried that, that is, people are like, Greenwald sold me short? I only stuck around because I thought this was going to be a three-pronged no, no, no. answer? I, I don't think that they're going to find the answer more interesting. What I think is, I'm like, the mouth writes a take check that the brain in the moment cannot cash, right? Where I don't actually know... I mean, look, everybody knows how, how much we prepare these podcasts and how much we, you know, pre-write so much of what we say. I don't know where even this thought that I'm giving you right now is going, let alone in how many distinct <laughs> segments it's going to be delivered to you in. And for anyone who's like our 78-year-old president has diminished cognition, I would say the fact that he consistently nails all three parts of his answer is a sign that he's operating on a higher plane than, Better than your us. humble co-host. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yet I can't stop doing it. So it's, it, it is just, it is just, uh, it's, it's, like a, it's like a gambling addiction for people who don't actually gamble and nothing's at stake. So I wanted uh, you to be aware of that and I wanted to bring our listeners in on that. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Black Widow. Okay. Now, uh, as, you, as, as anybody who's listened to this pod knows, my interest in the MCU is primarily a Romanoff interest. You know, like... Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm, No, I'm just mm -hmm. kidding. I I really Mm. don't have a feel for the Black Widow character, but this has been the biggest victim of sort of the closing of movie theaters probably has been Black Widow. This was a movie that was supposed to come out shortly after movie theaters closed. (laughs) You mean the biggest cinematic victim, not like the people who, yeah. Sling popcorn. Yes, exactly. In terms of releases, there's this Mm -hmm. and there's no time to die. These are the the two that I really think of as having been like completely warped by the fact that they just there's just no clarity on when movie theaters well, would be well, open and what kind of well, audience. Well, Tenet died, so those movies could jump backwards off of a building. Yeah, but I would argue actually that Tenet went a was in theaters. If you happen to just want to just grind it out in Arizona, and B, like, has since had one life when it got released to VOD or mm-hmm. you know paid streaming on like Apple right. and Amazon and everything, and now we'll have another life in about a month when it hits Max. So I think Tenet has actually like. To the extent that you could play this perfectly, we'll have three full okay. release cycles. Mm-hmm. Whereas Black Widow, which is already a prequel to a bunch of other Avengers and Marvel stuff anyway, has kind of just been left in the dust here. And now it's going to be announced that finally they've just decided, look, this will come out in theaters. And, and for all we know, with the vaccine rollout, there might be more activity in theaters in coming weeks. I think weeks. there will be. Anyway, yeah. But it will also be available on Disney+. Plus. Or, as we will now have to call it, Disney Plus Plus, because you are going to be required to pay an additional $30, right? Well, let me jump in here, Chris, and say that those of us who have right. a waterfront property on Daddington Island <laughs> have known for quite some time ha, the, the, cruel, the cruel <laughs> ki- rising, the cruel kiss of the Plus Plus. What was spring uh, break like on Daddington Island? You know, well, I would say it's probably better than it was in Florida. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was quieter, less viral. I think I even alluded to this a couple of weeks ago that, you know, you know, that, you know, in, in, uh, in all movies where someone is flying a ship and there's a moment where they have to like pilot the ship through something dangerous and the reckless captain, the Captain Kirk type is like, hold steady, Ensign, hold it, hold it. And they're like, well, it's not going to work, Captain. You know what I mean? And like, 
but he holds it just just long enough and they make it through the meteor belt or whatever. Yes, unless he is piloting a boat through the Suez Canal, yes. Great call, great call. Relevance too, which I appreciate. <laughs> that is me white-knuckling it through the pre-release plus-plus period for Raya and the Last Dragon. Every day when I come home from work or the children come home, they tell me which additional friends of theirs have now seen Raya and the Last Dragon. And I think of the these parents, some of whom I know, some of whom I don't, and I think to, of them as traitors. How I tried to preach economic prudence That's right. to my children. I was like, you will see this last dragon. There are no more dragons. You know what I mean? So don't worry. It's not going anywhere, but we will see it when it becomes free because yes. I will not pay $30 for you to watch but half then of these Raya other once. parents are like money printer go burr. Seriously. And in fairness, to pay for the sweet, sweet peace of the 90-minute length of Raya and the Last Dragon, I'm sure economically makes sense to them. But anyway, this they have been doing this and they did it for the Mulan live-action movie as well. And it seems to be going great gangbusters. And to your, your tenant point, this is a way to win, 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 right? Like they can get a little piece here, a little piece there, a little extra piece. Mm-hmm. And regardless, for shareholder purposes, which is all anything seems to be for with these larger companies, they can spin every part of the narrative of these movies as as growth because mm-hmm. it's building subscribers one way or another. Because you can't pay the $30 to see it at home unless you also subscribe to the plus. Then you get and, the plus. And then you're still looking at ultimately cheaper night in than a cheaper night out. Like if you go buy two movie tickets, pay for parking, in some cases pay for a babysitter, probably factor in other things. Like you're looking at a $50 night. So this is 30 bucks plus the monthly charge. What? Other things, the the ketamine, like are are you a (laughs) cast member of industry going to the cinema? I mean like Goobers. You just <laughs> Goobers is the 40-year-old's ketamine. So you're um, fine. so Black Widow and Cruella both coming to Disney Plus uh premiere access uh for $30 a shot. And then I thought it was worth mentioning that with this Black Widow release, I wanted to ask you whether you thought yes, there is the financial factor. They can they can sort of like get growth out of it in in a mm-hmm. bunch of different ways. But are they running out of time to release this given the storytelling concerns yes. that they have with various series that are coming? And I know, like, obviously, this isn't a spoiler to say Florence Pugh, who is in Black Widow, is also in, for instance, Hawkeye. So yep. they have to kind of, like, get this stuff up and out there, right? Yeah, you you made this point the other day, and I think it was a really smart one. And then since, since you made that point, I, I saw there was an article on The Verge that captured this the the uniqueness of this moment pretty well, which is that the thing that has made Marvel all powerful in media and in entertainment and the envy of all is this everything is connected uh, mm-hmm. style of storytelling. But a lot of planes backed up on the runway. Yes. You know what I mean? The 445 to Denver can't take off until the 145 to Denver uh, takes off. I believe uh, former Magic star Aaron Gordon is on one of those flights. Is that right? <laughs> yes. That's Just right. showing off. I'm trying to be on your other podcast. Um and because of that, they can't do what the other big still TBD films have done, which is the James Bond movie and Fast and Furious 9, I believe, right? Which is say, we'll just wait. We're mm-hmm. fine. This is the last possible moment because if one domino slips, they all slip. And uh, which isn't to say that, you, you know, you won't be able to enjoy Chloe Zhao's Eternals unless you see Black Widow. But clearly there's a lot of things that 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 are connected and are related. And particularly your point about characters who we don't even know yet 
showing up in projects to talk about things that we have no idea the the provenance of that's that was inevitably about to happen and in fact the verge article revealed something that i hadn't even been aware of because i wasn't paying that close attention which was we joke that you know to really appreciate wandavision we'd have to watch doctor strange 2 in the multiverse of madness Mm -hmm. but that's not a joke um under the original release plan where wandavision would have followed falcon and winter soldier um, Doctor Strange 2 would have been released within weeks, if maybe if not a week after it was yeah. over. And we'd be back on Mount Wondegore with floating Wanda, and now it's going to be a year. So they had a very carefully laid plan that they have had to scramble. So it has to come out. It's just, it's so funny. I mean, like what you're saying, this is such a Marvel problem. Like to have <laughs> such an elaborate and expensive storytelling exercise that needs to land in a certain order. But like, meanwhile, DC wound back the clock for Snyder have they have like two post credit sequences in Justice League that mm-hmm. sets up a new chapter of the DCCU and then they were like Zack is fucking out we're making Shazam 2 like and they're just like constantly like just turning the boat Doesn't in the Suez Canal you know <laughs> <laughs> you're really into this boat story I, dude can we just say like what's up with this boat <laughs> they're just stuck <laughs> like they can't we can't get this done I mean what's Kind of funny about it is that everybody's laughing, but isn't this going to sink global trade for the Dude, rest the, of fiscal 2021? Sh- shout, shout out to the guys over at the Trap Draw podcast. I'm really worried about the choke points. Wow. <laughs> Chris, you are, you. I mean, I guess I got to admit it, since a lot of other people are on podcasts, I think I'm a CR head. How can you talk <laughs> about this also? Choke what? points? How do you know about look, the global economy you know and the reach around jokes at the end of Justice League? I bet McMullen can look right out her window and see the, the boats piling up at Long Beach. What's it look like, Kaya? Can we get a, a, a report? Are there a lot of cans? Lots of honking. <laughs> Lots of honking. <laughs> wow. Uh, we appreciate you. That We don't usually like to mute you, Kaya, but I guess it's, it's worth it today. Um, yeah. I, I, I guess the only other thing I wanted to say about these two, the, partic- the two particular Disney, and, and if you want to see the, the domino effect, like everything moving slightly later, Eternals going a little bit later, Shang-Chi moving a little bit later, the Spider-Man sequel now i think it's the only one that didn't move because that had been set in december mm-hmm. but you mentioned two movies in particular which were part of chapex um bob jpex uh announcement about mm-hmm. this uh black widow and cruella and i wonder if it's worth just looking at those two titles with 2021 vision not just in terms of like where we've been <laughs> globally and culturally but also <laughs> what movies even are anymore and what what Disney is versus when these movies what, where they were when the movies were originally set to be released and I think that you can make um, you could make the rather spicy argument that both of these movies ought to have been direct to Disney Plus anyway now I think because of their like prequel origin story a, a and, wild reimagining of kind of vibe mm-hmm. Well, what's the box office ceiling for Emma Stone in a Cruella DeVille origin story? We will, I'm, I'm we still will, not entirely we will convinced know. that's a real thing. Like that Me just definitely either. feels like an SNL commercial. And, and it feels like, you know, I, I've talked before about how the real gold mine or at least bronze mine of Disney Plus as a, as a parent is this just endless trove of like, it's not just Lion King 2, there's Lion King 1 and a half, which by the way, very clever uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern influenced storytelling. So shouts to our man Tom Stoppard on that. I was impressed by it. But these sort of movies that were just really, you know, sort of self-dealing uh-huh. for years, perpetuating the own, their, Disney's own myths, but they sort of, they weren't official. They weren't above board. They weren't in movie theaters, so we, they weren't part of the discourse. 
Disney is essentially, that's what it, it, it is. It is, it is in the business of being a mine and then mining itself. Like mm-hmm. it is completely self-sustaining at this point with the franchises that it owns. And so that's just, I don't know, I guess it's just somehow more clarified with the existence of, of Disney Plus. So Cruella, okay, sure. It's a thing to do. Also, uh, stars, I mean, Emma Stone's already done a TV show, but like her being in this ritzy role and then going straight to the small screen, not that big of a surprise. Yeah. The Black Widow thing, I think you could you could make the more cynical view, take the more cynical view, which is, yes, it's a prequel of a character who is not, spoiler, not currently alive in the MCU. Also, maybe it is giving a character that had got short shrift on the big screen a lot more room to sort of grow and, and develop, which is what they did with Wanda and WandaVision. And maybe that the small screen is the place for it. I actually wouldn't make that argument primarily because uh, the character the people working on the movie, the cast, you mentioned Florence Pugh and others, is cool enough yeah, that Rachel I hope Weiss that we- Yeah, and David Harbour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I that, that's fantastic. And I would love it if in this trojan horse multinational corporation synergistic entertainment culture that there's room for an international spy thriller series mm-hmm. like on the big screen. I would have preferred it for that reason. But how do you feel about this? I mean, it, doesn't this sort of feel like, why were they fighting it so long? I don't, I don't know. I, I think that- I think that this has been a much more. I, when, when we go back and like you know recently, I know that the um, there have been a lot of like we we talked about the year, it, the pandemic year for TV. We've there's a sports doc coming out on HBO. I think it's the year sports stood still uh, on HBO about about like the NBA coming to a freezing halt because of the pandemic. I I will be very curious to go back and find out about the impact this had on the movie. Th- theater business and Hollywood's reaction to that and what ideas were sort of trotted out there, what ideas were put on the ice. At what point was there actually a, like, did they were like, you know what, we should just do it, do what HBO Max is doing and put everything out this year and then worry about next year? Or whether or not there has been this bullishness that I think there will be a turn in, a, cor- a corner turned in terms of this pandemic and that people will start getting vaccinated in the next two months and that p- theoretically we could be back in movie theaters by June or July. I think all of those versions uh, are can be true and probably are true. I think that it didn't cost Disney anything to keep kicking the ball down the road a little bit. They clearly as early as last spring probably had this as the yeah. last possible line to hold against the worst case scenario or one of them, let's hope, worst case scenario for the virus, right? So no harm in just waiting because they would obviously have preferred to keep it in theaters. I do think one of the things that had to happen, though, before Bob Chapek made this announcement that everyone assumed was inevitable was they had to prove or normalize Marvel content on TV first before Scarlett Johansson had to do it for everybody else. You know what I mean? And so now, yeah. 10 weeks later or whatever it's been since WandaVision premiered, it's like, okay, great, more Marvel content. I don't care where I get it. We all, we're all on board with that now. That's fine. Further down the road, and, and this is something that I think Sean and Amanda on The Big Picture probably have spoken about and will speak about with a lot more authority, Eternals will go to movie theaters. I feel confident about yeah. the world uh, that it will. How long will it be before it's also 30 bucks on Disney Plus? Probably a lot less time than than you might expect. Yeah, um, I, I would Because imagine. I think that window has changed forever. Yeah, and I think I think that will have like the most profound effect on on those theaters. Uh, briefly, before we get into some of our listener mail, I just wanted to mention that Superstore is ending tonight. Uh, after I believe it is six seasons, and it'll be something around like 110, 115 episodes. And I just thought I would mention it. We rarely see uh, a show like this where 
it's just basically a multicam comedy that that has developed an audience over the course of its run. Ably kind of navigated the absence of its star this year when America Ferrera, who's essentially what was the the big name in the show at the start, mm-hmm. stepped aside from the show. Although she did show up at the end of last week's episode and and is presumably in this week's episode. And I, I've I've always enjoyed it. You know, like I, I we don't really talk that much about network sitcoms on this show. There's not really a lot to break down about it. I thought it was really interesting, though. I just thought I would mention that this was a show that really came out as a uh, an extension of the sensibility of of the Mike Sure shows on NBC that kind of exploded into popularity in the 2010 to 2015 era of like The Office mm-hmm. and Parks, and then. It aired in 2015 and very quickly became essentially like a a, a resistance sitcom. Like not, it became a Trump era show unintentionally Mm -hmm. and became a show about... (laughs) Well, we all became Trump era participants unintentionally. But I think that the issues that it kind of talked about, whether it was uh, labor or immigration, Mm -hmm. the the things that it wound up grappling with. And then at the end, COVID, and this is one of the shows that have shot through the pandemic and, and people are wearing masks on the show, it wound up being like a strangely reflective sort of time capsule show, as well as being like incredibly enjoyable ensemble. And I think a lot of the people who are on this show will go on to do really good stuff. There actually might even be a spinoff uh, with one of the characters, Cheyenne. But yeah, just thought I would mention that um, they're going out on a high note. I think that they, they never got bad. It never really like lost its fastball. And uh, it was just a really cool, really cool little, little sitcom. What do you think Superstore did better than other sitcoms of this era and and maybe better is a loaded word i just mean like what in addition to to sort of being able to nimbly surf the zeitgeist which i really you know i haven't seen the show so i i'm not even going to pretend to step onto the step into the arena with you but um that does impress me but what 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 sort of set it apart? Do you think? What, I mean, because you know, if if I was asking that question about Thirty Rock, in addition to any other things, you could say just like the sheer relentless speed of the jokes. It's just like God bless. Or the Mike Sure sitcoms you mentioned, the vibes you know yeah. win out and win people over. Well, I think that where the Office kind of captured mundane, kind of grinded out. What am I even selling here? Office work. Superstore really does capture the kind of um, daydreaming that occurs in retail jobs, or at least the ones that I've worked, where you have a lot of busy work and there is a lot of structure to your day. But at the same time, there's a lot of bullshitting that can go on. And there's a lot of like kind of ripe opportunities for comic uh, comic riffing on like what the kinds of things that they have to do. And that they've they've repeatedly like found a lot of humor in the sort of mundane nature of retail work. One of the, I love that you're saying this because I was just while thinking also, about While also having a heart and doing a good like will they or won't they on a couple of different characters and just generally being like pretty pretty watchable on a week-to-week basis. I was talking to my friend, uh, Giancarlo, composer, worked on Briar Patch the other day and he was up in Boston and he was walking the streets of Boston and he said that he was on Newberry Street and I was like, oh, I know it, I know it well because my man Chris Ryan used to work at, at Newberry Comics there and I would remember when I would visit Boston in college and go to the store, you never knew what TV show you and the rest of the crew were in that day. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I don't even mean that necessarily in a suspicious way, although I think sometimes it was a little sus, but like speaking of industry, (laughs) right. What I'm saying is the, not just the camaraderie, but the like 
you guys were all tuned into a very specific transistor radio frequency every day because you were just stuck there. And so sure. I'd walk in and be like, mm, it's a sunny day. Do, do, do. do you have the new Idlewild B-sides or whatever on import? And you would not be in that mood necessarily. Or not in that necessarily. Mode. I mean, like, usually like that, the thing about retail is that you are living the inverse of everybody else. Like when somebody is <laughs> right. having a fun Saturday of shopping, you're like, I am in hell. You know what I mean? But when right. somebody is like, uh, you know, when it, the, there's nothing like a Wednesday night when you're like secretly taking pulls off of like a bottle in the back or like going out for cigarette breaks every five minutes. This is the 90s. So, you know, I mean, like <laughs> the cigarette breaks. Out so so it, was, it was okay. <laughs> yes. We didn't know. We thought we cigarettes didn't know. were fine. We thought it was okay to drink Sam Adams in public. But yeah, like I, I also think that Superstore very successfully, like I, I would just say Superstore has like a super diverse ca- cast and that it was been a kind of like a real pleasure to like discover the qualities of some of the people that they've had on the show. So yeah, uh, salute to them. 115 episodes or 112 episodes in 2021 is no small feat. And Incredible. I think it's a show that once, you know, it's going to be on Peacock or wherever it winds up, Hulu, it will have one of those, like I'm obsessed. I'm watching Superstore over and over again, streaming lives. So why don't we take a quick break? We'll come back. We're going to take some listener questions and then we're going to talk a little bit about our bureau project. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, Andy, we're back. I have a couple questions from our listeners. And mm-hmm. fun things about uh, our listeners is that, you know, if you ask, they shall answer. With questions, but they shall answer. So thanks so much to our Facebook group for uh, always coming through with the questions. And let's start here. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mix it up a little bit here. Okay. I'm going to ask you, Andy, mm-hmm. from Jason mm-hmm. Lavala, 
And you, you can answer this as much as you are or are not comfortable. For Andy, <laughs> what's the day-to-day like for someone with quote-unquote projects in quote-unquote development? How much time yeah. do you get to spend writing? And what's the mm-hmm. rest of the work consist of? Great question. Um, uh, it's kind of like what Chris was saying, Saturdays and retail were like. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I've been basically in this room in my office uh, writing stuff for the last, well, since last summer, since basically mm-hmm. when it became okay to occasionally leave the home and come to this office. Um, and what that means is, you know, I, I think a lot of it is is affected by the pandemic year, obviously, and even having a deal or projects to work on is incredibly fortunate luxury. But it also means that priorities, you know, even within the studios were elsewhere. So I've had a lot of time to write one project in particular that I'm still trying to, now I'm trying to turn the corner on a new draft of today. Um, I would say you could do it. I know we were talking about this before. Chris believes in me. Um, I was also, do you remember the old trick? And I know no one from the studio listens to the podcast, but the old trick where you turn something in on Friday with the hope and assumption that no one will read it over the weekend. So you could turn in a new draft Sunday night and be like, oh no, read this one instead. There's no one thing that I prof- more profoundly changed my attitude about in my life than when, when I went from being a writer yes. to an editor about that. If you need it on Friday, what you really mean is I won't look at this until Monday. So I won't send this to you until Monday afternoon. Yeah. Versus like, if I said Friday, there was a reason. Yeah. Listen to you. Do you, do you hear the little bass in his voice? The little gravel that came into his, <laughs> his normally kind speaking voice. We're on two sides of the divide here, my man. No, yeah. uh, I. so there's generally a steady drumbeat of just trying to get the writing done uh, and then, you know, get notes about it and and, and rewrite. Um, then there is on a, let's take one step down. There are projects that I'm either not writing actively or I'm supervising or working with other people on. And that those often involve, you know, if there's another writer, phone calls, conversations, and then conversations with the studio or other people who might be involved with the project, trying to move the ball forward, reading things, giving notes, moving the ball forward. There's always new stuff. So, mm-hmm. oh, I had an idea. Maybe this could be something chasing down the rights, talking to the rights holders, maybe talking to the authors or the people involved in it and trying to move that ball forward as well. Um, so it's, I mean, frankly, my least favorite part of any professional writing career is the being alone writing part. Sure. Uh, many, many people say this and know this, but like writing is hard and having written is awesome. Um <laughs> But all of it is an attempt to basically get back. You just try to get back up to the top of the hill where you can then start not the real work, but the more fun work to me anyway, which is opening a writer's room and hiring other people. And then it becomes a social project. Right now, it's the part that you can do on your own, which is, yeah, just constantly writing, constantly doing phone calls and conversations and pitches. And yeah. Sounds fun. But you know what the highlight is? 9 a.m. podcasts because... (laughs) It's funny you say that. I almost said this before, but I actually had a network pitch for a project the same day this week, and it was at 5 p.m. at cocktail hour. And so I started the day flaming hot at 9 a.m. with you and our special guest. And somehow, I did not think this was possible. Somehow, that energy just stayed, just stayed. The flame was on all the way until 5, which I was very grateful for. You call 5 p.m. cocktail hour, huh? Well, there's a famous phrase that it's 5 o'clock. Somewhere, and in this case, it really was here. 
<laughs> I, I do not begin drinking cocktails at five o'clock generally. When do, when do you crack one open? 505. No, I'm more of a 615 person. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, do you have a work day, even though it's, you know, work from home still, but like for the ringer where up until 6 p.m., you still could be getting those tardy drafts or you have a work yeah, conference I mean, call. Yeah, I mean, it's different now. I, I think it's more just like in relation to like, once I have a beer, I often like to have a second, you know? Sure. You're, you're so only the, human. The earlier you start, the more beers you will have. So I try mm. to like kind of like crunch the beers from like six, crack one open as I'm cooking mm-hmm. dinner. Nothing better, right? Nothing. Is there anything better? And then another beer, you know, uh, after dinner. And then, yeah, the ketamine comes out after that, you know? So sure. <laughs> just, sure. Just, 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 I was just, I was listening, I was listening to, uh, that old uh, puffy track victory this morning. He <laughs> says sprinkle cocaine on the rug so it's drug related. So that's like that's what happens around nine p.m. Oh, I, oh, right. <laughs> last night when I texted you, Chris, are you returning to Paris tonight in season two of Le Bureau? And you were like, soon. So like, I guess it was a lot more taut. It was a little rougher, tawdry yeah. in your home. Um, I, I'll say two quick things on this point. One thing that has changed. You mentioned if you have one, you like to have two. One thing that has changed in, in my old age is. I have learned to accept that it's never as good as that first beer. No, like, you're right. That is so good that actually now, and maybe this is just because I'm washed or tired, but like I used to be like, let's let's just see if I can maybe I can chase that dragon one more time. Crack a second here at 8 p.m. No, I've given that up. That's that's the young me. Do you ever I, switch beers in midstream? You mean like to a, a like a different uh alcoholic drink? No, or, different beer brand. Oh, well, if I've run out, sure. Sure. I mean, like, there are practical concerns, but if, right. are you ever like, I'll have one of this beer and then I'm going to switch to this other beer? Sometimes, but it's usually disappointing. Sometimes if I'm feeling frisky. You don't like that. Never, ever, ever do that. I would rather be like, I'm done drinking for the night than switch beers. Well, which is interesting because the other day when you and your wife had an outdoor hang with me, I was like, Chris, I, you, you actually brought, you curated your own evening. And I was like, Chris, I'd like you to try this. And you looked at me with both gratitude and anger. And I realize that now because you were like, I'll try this. It was skepticism because essentially then now I have to take back two PBRs back to my home because you were like, try this beer. And I was like, as long as you have two. Did I? Yes, you were fine. Thank God. So uh, (laughs) wait, so that was one thing. The other thing is uh, just to say that when one's existence, and again, this is enormously privileged as evidenced by the fact that I was like, we had to be at our desk at 9 a.m. So I apologize. But it is an enormous privilege to sit in this room and bang my head against my desk and occasionally touch the keys all day on a project that means a lot to me. But I would absolutely not have held on to any of my sanity or my, oh, I only have one beer now bragging if I didn't have the <laughs> podcast to do twice a week. Because at least I see a person yeah, I'm and your can social just talk. Life. Right, exactly. Yeah, and just like do use a different part of the brain. Um, you know, you mentioned briefly in describing your day to day about how the pandemic has sort of changed some of that. And we did get a question about this. We've hit this recently, but yeah. I think it's always worth kind of coming back to where Vincent Nunnally asks us, are we running out of shows due to COVID or is this just a normal dry spell? Outside of Disney, it's a lackluster slate and many of the top shows right now are only four to five episodes each. Thank you for your question, Vince. And um, this is something Andy and I have been kind of grappling with and it's weird. I think a lot of people probably feel the same way in their own way where you're like, 
is it me or is it TV? Right. So mm-hmm. there is a lot on. When you go to this the site that I go to, the Metacritic TV release dates, there's dozens of shows coming out every week. You know, I would say probably on average, at least one of those things warrants not warrants my attention, but sounds like something I might be interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I don't remember a time like this where you and I have had to do so much. I wouldn't say like headline reaction because I think that there's a reason why we talk about this stuff, but we have not had a show show for ourselves outside of the Disney stuff in a while. Usually yeah. like they, I think this time last year, what we were probably finishing up the outsider, you know what I mean? Normal people was coming or had just normal people. There was just like a real abundance. And I look at the slate and I'm kind of like, I'm trying to figure out what's happening. You know, is this stuff, did they just put out all the stuff that they had done? Like was the undoing the last finished show or, or what is going on right now? Well, I, I think it's probably best to answer the question by talking about something that used to be considered an art form, which is scheduling. Yes. I mean, we will, it'll be interesting to see whether this is a a casualty of the last year and a half or not. But the way that we got, the ways that we got shows, well, you know, maybe didn't give us, we didn't think about it that often, or maybe we took it for granted, but it was the result of a lot of market research, consideration, gamesmanship, brinksmanship between services and networks. Um about when and how they were going to deliver things and what else would be on the air when they did. Um, there were whole departments dedicated to that. And when you're talking about a, a brand like HBO, at least in the pre-Max days, or even still just kind of what it is uh, as a distinct entity, it's a Sunday night business. I know they've ventured into Mondays now as well, but even that, that's a two-night business and they have a huge pipeline. So how and when they deploy things and time it just so that when one thing ends, well, they're ready to pick up with something else. That was all very delicately planned. Yes, there is, this is COVID related in that some shows weren't finished and, you know, those, all those beautifully laid plans where one Emmy contender didn't want to be on the air at the same time as another Emmy contender, that's all out the window. So Mm -hmm. we are going to get drips and drabs and things are going to show up when they show up and they're going to be dry spells or, you know, sudden attention, which can be a good thing on maybe otherwise unheralded international shows, which we've been trying to do. The bigger picture for me going forward is, is everybody just going to throw up their hands now, you know, and say like, you'll get it when you get it. Um, mm-hmm. the, the kind of the last big innovation I feel like that, that we referred to on the show was when Netflix was like, no, no, the, why are we scheduling for critics and newspaper publication schedules? Let's just push content Put on Christmas out. day. Yeah. Yeah. Like when people are home, it doesn't matter. We no longer, you know, when you and I were growing up at the Philly Inquirer, like David Biancooli would have his little like nightly picks, you know, and like that mattered. I would open up the newspaper and say, oh, I see something is arriving this day. And so that's why, you know, there would be a long lead time and they would get the screeners out and, you know, it would be pegged. Shows would release pegged to when things would publish about them. That's all gone. And so now is all of it gone? I guess we'll have to see. I would. I mean, there, there's obviously stuff coming out that we were really excited about, and I think also you and I get overly excited or like very excited about shows that maybe other people are like, "Why aren't you?" I don't know like, what you're talking about. Kind of reacting to this, you know, like, but the the Netflix thing is probably the thing that's the most different. Whereas those shows seem to be happening within the galaxy of Netflix and being juggernauts within the galaxy of Netflix and have exploded in some ways, like Bridgerton or Ginny and Georgia. But like, I think of kind of like for whatever reasons, like I enjoy Bridgerton and I I didn't watch Ginny and Georgia, but we haven't really had a a ton to say about those shows. So, I mean, 
I, I do think that there is something weird going on, but I can't quite put my finger on it. And I think what you're saying is really interesting, which is it's not really right now that's interesting. It's what happens in the future and how it changes, quote unquote, scheduling going forward. Um, jump to another question here. Patrick Dolan asks, in these days of endless streaming content out there and people revisiting great TV shows, what is one that you wish one of the streaming companies could make available that isn't right now? And Patrick, this is I'll say this every time I get asked this, and I think Andy might even agree with me. It's just Homicide Life on the Street. Uh, I, yeah. It's it's actually a crime against the medium <laughs> that Homicide is not available to more people. If you don't know what the show is, it's uh, a groundbreaking NBC cop drama uh, that aired after the Super Bowl sometime in the late 90s. It started. I remember very vividly it, it was the stay tuned after the Super Bowl for the premiere of Homicide Life on the Street. It starred Andre Brower, John Polito, Richard Belzer, Melissa Leo, um, Ned Beatty. The great late Yafet Kodo. Yafet Kodo. Uh, the first episode was directed by Barry Levinson. Obviously, it was based on a book by David Simon. Tom Fontana worked on it. And it's one of the best television shows I've ever seen. And the fact that it's not available to people, the fact that people can't study it the way we study the great HBO shows, the way that we've gone back to the great AMC shows is really like a crime. I don't know what the deal is, like what the the right situation is. I have a box set of it. I think you could still get those, but I encourage anybody if you can to watch it. I'm really, it's, it's a shame it's not available on Peacock or Hulu or, or anywhere else. It's it's the only answer, you know. Yeah. I, in 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 past years, we've gotten the question. I I would sing the praises of Terriers, which I believe is streaming now, and um, the more recently the Cinemax originals that I talked about. Yeah. You know, the other the other Banshee week, and um, Nick, yeah. And hopefully Quarry soon. Quarry, I think that yeah. would be the other one that I would put in that category. But I mean, Homicide is an essential show, and. I don't know what led me there recently, but something in one of those rabbit holes you fall down when you're avoiding doing the writing I was alluding to. And I was reminded of one of one of the many. I mean, they're, they're, it's really neat that you could talk about a show like Homicide where the whole thing is of great import and value, but mm-hmm. you can also handpick out half a dozen episodes that stand among the very best ever made and the most groundbreaking ever made. Um, I, I was reminded of the episode Subway, mm-hmm. which is- uh, The crossover, con- right? No, this is the one that's kind of a it's 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 a kind of a two hander in that Vincent Vincent D'Onofrio as a guest star plays oh, that's right. that's a right. commuter who is trapped beneath a Baltimore uh, Metro Rail train at the station, and what he doesn't know he seems he's fine but stuck is that as soon as they move him he will die, and so Andre Brower is there to investigate a homicide that officially hasn't happened yet. Right, And it is, there are other characters in it. Kyle Secor has a great arc. But these two actors just clubbing each other like heavyweight champs w- based on a premise that is real. I mean, they did research and uh, uh, you know, the people who, who made the episode had heard about this happening and, and researched it and all that. But it, but it is, it's, 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 it's like a play. You know, I don't know if sometimes that's not a compliment, but it absolutely holds up because of it. And you can watch some of it on YouTube, but... Mostly, I think we should just keep banging. Do you have any idea what the deal is with that? Like, why that's not? Is it one studio made it, another studio put it out, and the rights are still up in the air? Yeah, the reason why. I mean, some people hoped that Homicide would be available on Peacock when Peacock was announced, um, because NBC then it was called NBC Productions, then it was called NBC Studios did make the show. Uh, there were other entities involved who owned pieces of it, so it okay. seems like it's one of those things that has just fallen into the cracks. If it became an important uh, cause 
for people high up the food chain at NBC Universal. I bet it could get done, but it does sound it it must be a pretty tough knot to undo if it hasn't been done at this point. It's just wild. I mean, like the people who are stars on this show are still relevant. You know what I mean? Brower and yes. Melissa Leo are not you would you could sell a Andre Brower and Melissa Leo show now, you know, I mean yep. and, and people would be interested. So it's 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 pretty strange that this one hasn't come through. I mean, would love to see it happen. F. Clint Denisco, great name, uh, asks, do we see a future, a near future, of packaged streamers that pays a monthly price for a collection of streamers, a la the new version of a cable package? And I think you're going to get this question a lot more soon because as we were talking about earlier when we were saying we'd love for people to watch the Bureau along with us, but obviously it's going to be another $5.99, $6.99, $7.99 a month, whatever it is. People are going to start having uh, streaming service bills, monthly bills that are rivaling their cable bill. And they're Mm -hmm. still going to need to pay for their cable access and everything else. And I think that there is going to be some, some belt tightening and some cost cutting and some some cord cutting of the cord cutters, let's just say. Uh, I don't ever think that there will be a service. I mean, Apple TV essentially does this for you where you can get a lot of your streaming services kind of run through their interface. You can do the same thing on Amazon Prime. Uh, I don't think necessarily you're going to get like one to rule them all. I do think that we will have some mergers and acquisitions in the next five years. I think that's the right way to to answer it. The goal... The reason why there are so many streamers is to avoid bundling. I mean, they all want to be the place that you pay directly. They want your information. They want to use the information that you use to subscribe to beat the competition. Yeah, they want to know and what to, you watch, how and, long and you watch it And to create an insular for. ecosystem yeah. for their own entertainment product. I think that um, it's unsustainable. I think everybody knows that, but everybody's waiting for some shoes to drop. You know, in the short term, we're talking about AMC slash Sundance, that, that entity there have been a lot of rumors about the bet it being acquired by something larger for quite a long time. I don't know where that stands or what that whether that's likely, but it's something to pay attention to. Um, beyond that, one thing that the pandemic has done at great cost, I think, to the corporations who are not hurting, but you know what I mean, mm-hmm. uh, is kick the can down the road for at least another 18 months from D-Day, mainly because these companies, to use the one that I'm affiliated with, NBC Universal, as an example, basically can make the case to shareholders, well, we haven't done it yet. Like we built this streaming system to launch with the Olympics and to showcase our holistic synergistic vision and have X, Y, and Z original programming on there. And none of that was possible. So you got to give us a little more rope here. And, you know, there was a report about the company being happy that it had only lost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars this year in Peacock. I mean, that these things are structured to lose money until they don't, Uh, I guess, aren't we all, but, um, if you if you Google which streaming services are going to survive, you will find many smart industry watchers making certain predictions as to what might make sense in terms of slightly medium fish gobbling slightly smaller fish to compete. Because it's clear, you know, that I don't know if any of these companies can compete with Disney and Apple and Netflix um, and Amazon. I mean, they are the big ones. But all of that is TBD because they're all choosing different strategies and different tactics. And yeah. it hasn't really played out yet. And we also don't know what the streaming landscape looks like when people can go outside again. You know, I mean, these uh, several of these services were launched into a time period when people are spending more time in front of screens than ever before in human history. Will there be a course correction where everybody decides to go go to Dodgers games and play in the park all summer? Or will there be 
a kind of learned behavior where now people spend more time indoors on screens entertaining themselves with their devices than they do going to movie theaters gathering mm-hmm. in public going to restaurants and bars doing whatever so i'm i'm kind of fascinated when it comes to that stuff uh but i, I agree with you i think that ultimately down the line somebody is going to turn to somebody else and be like we launched it we have a library of originals we have some the rights to these shows now we sell this off and kind of take our losses um this is a fun one. Tim McNulty asked, now that Bagelgate has come and gone, which Andy obviously participated in, uh, what's Thank one you. LA food culture item that New York should adapt? What? Oh, um, I mean, there's so many. I, 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 you know, I'm not a take, I'm not a takesman. I'm not wading into this at all. So this no. is, this is going to be all you. I don't think it's, I think it's too challenging to make that, to, to really even wade into it. The comparisons are just kind of faulty. Like if you look for LA and New York, you're going to be upset. And if you look for New York and LA, you're going to be upset. I think that the sheer breadth of uh, cultures here and cuisines is just unlike anywhere else in the country. And it's because it's just physically bigger. So you can also, many people have cars. And so you can uh, do what I did yesterday, which was, was driving on the highway. And I was like, oh, I see where I am. I'm going to get off here and have the best banh mi I've ever had in my life because I can just do that. Whereas yeah. there are wonderful banh mi's in New York, absolutely. But if you happen to be on the Upper West Side, you're not going to just dip over to Sunset Park in Brooklyn to get it. Sure. So, and similarly, like type, you know, the access to produce out here is different and the intensity, the just sheer like amount of chefs focused on making the very best version of the thing that they love in New York is just unparalleled anywhere in America. So not doing it, not taking the bait, love them both. And boy, you know, maybe I'll feel differently once I can actually go to New York again. Yeah. Uh, But no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking it. We've all got great stuff. I think I'm going, let's go out and support these restaurants. I think I'll be in New York in May and I will, I will, I will report from the front. I'll, I'll go to Sunset Park and be like, Andy Greenwald doesn't think that this is a very accessible by me. Uh, um, let's talk Thank about you. the Bureau before we go. My um, name carries weight in Sunset Park, Chris. I know. Always has. Uh, let's talk about the Bureau. So Andy and I have always really enjoyed these. I mean, I, I don't know that we've done it that many times, but last summer when we did Lonesome Dove with you guys, I think we really enjoyed the mm-hmm. chance to take a step outside of the usual cycle of covering stuff and really dive deep uh, on it with our listeners who I think a lot of whom either rediscovered or discovered for the first time, the writing of Larry McMurtry, as well as mm-hmm. the Epic mini series, which, you know, which was very informative to go back and see TV from that era in any case, but also as a wonderful piece of television. So we wanted to kind of do that with this show, the Bureau. It is hard to say like, you know, Oh, the, this is essential because of this, that, or the other thing that's happening right now. I'm going to turn it over to Andy to kind of do the broad strokes. But what I will say about this show is that, you know, obviously in various social media places, people have been encouraging us to watch this for a while. People are like, I can't believe you haven't checked out the Bureau yet. I started right around when Andy started a couple of weeks back, just watching from the beginning. And it is no understatement. I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say it has kind of recalibrated my relationship to television in a wonderful way. One of the things I think has been an underlying anxiety to this last year and maybe even longer as we've hit peak TV and live in it has been there's just too much. We're expected to watch it at all this different all these different times. And the um 
I just don't feel like there's any center. There's no gravity. There's no, there's no feeling of like, this is when I watch TV and it is a reward for a day of hard work or a day of whatever. Mm -hmm. Somehow this five-year-old, six-year-old French TV show has become that for me. Every night for the last two weeks, I -hmm. have finished my day. I watch a little basketball, I eat dinner, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I have one beer, two beers. Five, six beers. Yeah. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Dive into a bag of ketamine and, (laughs) um, and I watch uh, the Bureau with my wife, Phoebe, and we watch an episode a night, pretty much. And it has taken me back. Not only is it just, I'm completely on the sauce right now, but I it, it feels like it is needs to be talked about among the great 20, 25 shows of mm-hmm. the last 20 years. But um, it's just such an amazing experience to watch it on a night-to-night basis. Uh, just, it's like kind of the, sl- it's basically a slow binge. Whereas sometimes mm-hmm. people will just crush an entire season of a Netflix show on a day or a weekend. I have loved the like spreading this out, making this basically the highlight of my evening, mm-hmm. something to look forward to, something to think about, something to talk about with Andy. And we're going to get into why we love it so much. But I just wanted to say this has been kind of a revelation for me over the last couple of weeks. I couldn't agree more. And I want to start from the place that you just ended, which is to say you cannot discount how important it is that for both of us, this is a everyone in our household over the age of seven wants to watch this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like my wife and I also are equally committed to this show, which is fantastic and all too <laughs> rare. I'll also say in terms of how it's changed my relationship to TV, one of the greatest things about it for me is knowing how much more of it there is. I'm currently on episode seven of season two mm-hmm. and after I finish season two, there's season three, season four, and season five. That feels great. It feels fantastic and exciting. It does not feel like homework. It does not feel like an obligation. It does not feel like it's, you know, I, I'm walking towards a rake hidden in the grass. I, I don't feel like a show that is this expertly controlled and developed and just a story this well told is going to to do me wrong. And that is a really nice feeling, especially after the last two years, which has been so much for us, both as viewers and on the podcast about the shock of the new or the, what is that flavor of the month? It, it could be a really incredible flavor we've never had before. Sure. But generally, we have been more involved with uh, shorter run shows, limited shows, event shows, and this is not that. So- Oh, no, I was just going to say, I guess we should try to make the pitch for it, right? Right. Well, so to so the little bit of background so people know, the- the, the, this idea, you know, we, we talk a lot about international TV and, you know, formats like The Office, which is what Libero means, but I'm talking about the original uh, Ricky Gervais thing, Tra- traversing the world, having the same show in multiple countries. This The current version of the international world of television is really only a couple of years old. And uh, the industries within each country were kind of bespoke, which is a polite way of saying they were just kind of what they were. They kind mm-hmm. of just grew on their own and developed some shows in some in some ways and often just kind of didn't do things the way they did it in America with differing results. The The history of, of Le Bureau is specifically, I think, tied to Canal Plus, the great studio whose name we have absolutely stolen for a recurring joke that only people who listen to this podcast like, uh, saw what Netflix was about to do. They saw the rise of Netflix in in Europe and particularly in France. And we're like, we need to get in on this before everything that's happening on this level in France is happening because of Netflix France. Sure. 
so we need to have a pay service and we need to have a prestige show. And they turned to this guy, Eric Rochant, who was a filmmaker in his own right and a, a classmate at film school with the great, some of the great directors of his generation, like Jacques Audriard, who will figure into our story later. And he developed this show and the, my, my, and it premiered in 2015. It ended last year, five seasons. The elevator pitch to make you watch it, I think is classy Homeland. And yeah. I say that not to diminish Homeland, which we had a lot of time for at the beginning and was very, very uh, enjoyable and serviced a lot of people's desires for a certain type of TV show. For us, though, what we, I think, and I think I speak for both of us, what we liked about Homeland, just to use this as an example, in the beginning was the sense of who can you trust, slow-burning espionage, how everything globally is interconnected and they're power players who know things, you know, and, and, and tying hearkening back to our love of spy fiction and John le Carre novels and whatever. The thing that is most striking about the Bureau, and there were only two episodes, two seasons into it, is it is completely, completely uh, subdued at times, almost to the point of abstraction. We were like, wait, is something happening? And then you realize it's beautiful mm-hmm. how absolutely subtle everything is and how devastating that is uh, in total as it, as it builds up. The show essentially is about the French uh, CIA, the DGSA, and more specifically about a brilliant operative, Guillaume de Bailly, whose alias is Melitru. Are we really going to, how hard are we going to press these French pronunciations? I'm doing it to bait you because you've already started (laughs) calling it the Bureau, which makes it seem like it's about a dresser, you know, like a dresser in someone's bedroom. And frankly, I'm insulted. We can do better. But... You might as well just call it the office. You know what I mean? Like if we're just going to go all the way in. Okay, well, so you're, no, we'll, your pitch of it being what, what did you call it? What homeland? Did, are you classy calling homeland. It? Classy homeland. I'm calling it just it's it's born identity, but just the office, just the office parts. Oh, just the crisis suites. Yeah, just the crisis suites. Well, yeah, there you go. That that I think that's great. And so Guillaume or William, as Chris would like to call him, <laughs> Billy, uh, play, play, played by the great French filmmaker and actor Matthew Kasovitz, who you may know from Laine or from Amelie. It's an incredible performance that we will talk about at length. But basically, it, as the show begins, he's coming off of a six-year undercover bid in Syria, where in addition to like turning agents and learning about, you know, and, and, and reporting back to his superiors about what was going on there, he has fallen in love and had this very intense affair with a woman named Nadia Al-Mansur. And she does not. She knows of him as a as a writer and English teacher named Paul Lefebvre, and uh, or as Chris would call him, Paul Lefebvre. You're putting so much great poupon on these. <laughs> I'm just I'm just locking eyes. Like I, I'm basically. You guys can't see our Zoom, but I'm basically doing uh, Eastbound and Down. See, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm basically doing Danny McBride looking at Craig Robinson right now. Um, and Kaya is Ashley Schaefer BMW, by the yeah. way, just lurking in the background. Um, so. He goes back to Paris and everyone's like, is this guy, did he lose himself in his double life? Yeah. And then his double life did comes home to, to roost. Deep. Yeah. And it's an open, it's an open question. And it is a show that does not have any time for your niceties of like, who's this guy? What's she doing? Why are they talking about that? And what's so great about it is it doesn't matter because by six episodes, you take a bullet for any single person on the show even if you don't know their names until 10 minutes before. Kind of got me back into like what good TV writing looks like. Because mm-hmm. for that exact same reason that you're saying where you're like, wait a second, who is this guy? Or wait, why did she say that? Or wait, who have we met this person before? Next scene, they tell you. It, it's all laid out. Like you never ever feel like you're being led down um, a cul-de-sac. 
And to watch them essentially in the first season, which I've been told is not among the best seasons. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly, I think the second season is a step up in terms of the filmmaking uh, and the sort of breadth of the show. It, second season is set in Tehran and in Paris as well as Damascus. So there's a little bit more um, globe hopping going on, globe trotting. But when you're watching this, even in the first season, and seeing them set up these sort of three separate storylines, you know, like there's sort of the internal Parisian office stuff going on with the DGSE. Then there is a storyline about a recruit that they are prepping to be inserted into Iran. And then there is the Nadia plotline of, of, of sort of Guillaume's double life. And you're like, I'm just, I kind of see them sort of knitting this all together. And you're waiting and you're waiting. And then when you start to see the roads converging, you're just like, you just want to stand back and applaud it and clap for it. And um, I it just, I kind of just feel like I needed something like this. It's just so refreshing to watch um, people who have such a handle on what they're writing and the world that they're creating and to see the characters be so well developed and kind of have an active relationship with upwards of 10 people in this show. You know, where you're like, I have like a real deep opinion about like this random person in the office. And also, I think people know this. Um, anyone who's ever loved spy fiction or spy stories on TV know that one of the best things about it is that every single person who lives that life is all about that life. Yeah. And so every moment of their lives, they are living like in triplicate. You know, they're wa- they're doing it. They're thinking about it. They're watching themselves. They're watching everybody else. And everybody is paranoid AF, but they're brilliant. So you never see it. So, like, there's a character, like, Guillaume's boss, Henri Duflo, who's played by Jean-Pierre Dachoussin. Is that okay, Chris? <laughs> One of my favorite characters of TV in the last 15, 20 years, based almost entirely, and I don't know anything about him, except that he wears bad ties mm-hmm. and is be- is becoming increasingly unhinged with concern over the course of... of Paranoia, of, yeah. Uh, over the course of two seasons. Um, I think another thing that I would note about it is, and I love this about it, it never gets too loud. It has, I think, so through 17 episodes that I've seen, or 16 episodes, two instances of violence, which are all the more stunning and uh, affecting because of it. Mm-hmm. I think it really reflects a world where more often than not, everything is an opportunity, not necessarily an opportunity for explosions or bloodshed or resolution, but an opportunity to pivot and to pivot yeah, again and, it's and also pivot like, again and to stay ahead of things. Yeah. And it, it, the way in which it surfaces the themes that you would expect a spy fiction to, to surface about whether or not you're an individual or you're a part of a, a nation, you know what I mean? And what your loyalty to yourself versus your loyalty to your country means. And or, or, or also within heart. that and what, yeah, exactly. And I, it's also extremely French. There's a lot of voiceover about enemies within and the ex, you know existential dread. But I really think that if people go get, get in on this, they will be deeply rewarded. Especially if you stick with it, because I think one of the things that you might not you might not be vibing with at the beginning is Kasovitz's performance is a mood, and so he talks more about the character explains himself a little bit more later on, and in the second season he meets someone who is new to this world, and he's basically like, "You're lying. You're lying. You're smiling. What are you doing with your face? Stop doing that." And you realize that Kasovitz, I guess, being either method or just really committing to the bit, spent a lot of time thinking about how he physically would exist if he was this person who can never show anything to the world because he's living as two people all the time. And so he is so rigor mortis tight in it physically, the way he moves, the way he doesn't move his face. And it's all the more impressive when you realize in the second season when he sort of castigates this young woman about how she's being. And then later, 
her face is hilarious because she's trying to do his face. Yes. Because she's trying to be like him, but she's not as good as he is. And all these people are giving each other serious face. And it's made all the better when you see uh, Guillaume going about his daily life, which increasingly includes journaling shirtless, which is something that I really want to get into post-pandemic. Um I think it's very it's a very powerful choice and really communicates it's, the desperation of his just, existence. Paint, I think this is a non-spoiler to paint this scene. Yeah. This is a man <laughs> that when we first see him in, in season two is standing wearing pants and no shirt. Mm. But like, as if he's about to go out, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I think, like mm-hmm. I think they're suit pants. Like he has dress pants on. Well, the, the wardrobes are phenomenal, of course. It's and France. he turns and goes and does a longhand journal entry. Yeah. And... I, I'm I'm absolutely like obsessed with this act because like it's 2016 in the show. It's not yeah. like it's not like we're like oh we're you know we can't he just have his MacBook out or something like that. And he is also being like way too candid in his journal. Way too <laughs> candid. Very emo all of a sudden, which makes you wonder what he's going to do with that journal. But uh, one other thing, the DGSA, the French CIA, has a commissary that is worthy of an entire podcast. Often the characters will go down we'll there and just sort this. of don't hash just, things don't, out. Don't blow your best material. I, I won't. I'll just say that I have never worked at a place. I've never worked at a place that had its own cafeteria, but you know what? I don't if think I, I have either. If I did. Not since I was a lifeguard. <laughs> but that was the greatest job you ever had. Yeah. Your lifeguard. That was every day. Was, the kid just ate Texas Tommy's, you know, it's a uh, bacon wrapped hot dogs and then had a fucking chocolate dip banana. Shout out to Lucille Booth. I, seriously, <laughs> respect in heaven to a legend. Um, you're, where you were worked as a lifeguard, I believe, was known as Le Bureau de Legends, <laughs> the Office of Legends. <laughs> I think that was originally where they got the yeah, source material from. Yeah, I did a um, lot of journaling I, there. I just want to say that I've never had a cafeteria, but if I did, I probably wouldn't order half a pineapple with my lunch. But I guess that's just normie behavior in France, and I love it. Last thing. Just when you think the show, I mean, the show will just keep you on a knife's edge of tension. It's beautifully, as Chris alluded to, the direction is beautiful. Locations are second to none. But they also made a choice in the first season because it it switches languages sometimes uh, based on the circumstance. And they had to bring in an American actor to play a heavy. We won't get into the reasons why. And they picked up the bat phone and called in Buddy Garrity from retirement. They got the god Brad Leland on a flight was on the Brad, Concord. Was Brad retired, do you think? No, 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 oh, no. Okay. I feel like I feel like he may have been just like waiting by the phone. I mean, I'm sure he has a nice career, but like every actor, let alone a jovial beloved character actor from a cult favorite, waits for the call being like, uh, yes, could you come to Paris? Yeah. Open-ended ticket and just wear suits? <laughs> do I have to learn French? No. Everyone will talk English to you. It's amazing. So just when you think you can't love this show more, Buddy fucking Garrity flies all the way from Texas and shows up and just starts muttering about like how they can make people disappear as easily as they can find them. It is elite. So I think what we need to do is probably take the temperature of whatever percentage of our audience is interested in going on this journey with us. Annie and I have already finished one. So we're ready to to rock with season one. We want to give you guys some time to catch up. I think it would be fun to do this piecemeal rather than watching the entire series and going back through it. I think we would like to go along together. Obviously, some of you may have already finished the Bureau. Some of you may have did not 
not want to watch it at all. So what we'll try to do is make this a little bit more of like bonus material, but um, know that it is the central preoccupation of our life and friendship <laughs> right now. So if you care about me and Andy, you'll watch the show. And um, also, if, if you notice that for the next few weeks, it's just Falcon and Winter Soldier and reader mailbags, it's because we are <laughs> only watching Le Bureau. So we're just trying to be honest with you. No, dog, and, we're just saving it all for Mayor of Easttown. Let's be real. Um, that's also true. So we'll, maybe I'll put out either a prompt on a couple of, of the social media handles to just be like, should we do this in three weeks? Should we do this? Yeah, let's in- do a poll. Yeah, we love polls. Anyway. Great talking I, to you today. I have a hookup with Dominion. They do a really good polling <laughs> machines. Is that cool? Yeah, that's good. 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 Wait, I, you you started topical and you ended topical. That's what I, 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 I really, I don't want to stray too far into current events, but I really am into the defense of no reasonable person would could ever assume I was serious about that. <laughs> it is such a, like I used to use the Joe Pesci <laughs> that's a, gift. That's how you're defending your WandaVision takes. <laughs> Yes, I used to be you overused the Joe Pesci, my cousin Vinny, you were serious about that uh-huh. gif. Now I'm just going to just use the Sidney Powell response to the Dominion lawsuit. No one could have possibly thought, yeah. PDF, like there's no reasonable person would ever believe me. And I feel like that is something that is in my arsenal now. So be warned. Great show. You're off Monday. Uh, don't yeah. know who's going to be here on Monday, but whoever they are, they're going to give you a run for their money. I can't wait to find out via Twitter. Thank you to you. Thank you to Kaya. Thank you to our listeners. We'll talk to you next week. Have a great week, Bransky's. Bye.